By the way, just so you know, safe sanctuaries requires us. You cannot pinch somebody because they're not wearing green. That would be against our rules. Though I do appreciate those of you who do wear green and do understand that it's St. Patrick's Day. You guys are awesome. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, as we come here this morning, speak to us. Continue to help us return to your heart, this journey that we're on during these 40 days, now 30 as we grow closer and closer to Easter, but we have a lot of territory to cover before that. There's a lot of the journey and the road that we need to walk along. The Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrow and suffering that you understood so well. Lord, help us walk a little bit of it with you. So pour into these words that I have this morning, and may they be acceptable and pleasing to you, and may they speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit into this place where we need to know how it is that we're supposed to imitate God with all our heart. Speak to us now in Jesus Christ. Do you know how many stars there are in the universe? It's not one million. It's not one billion. It's not one quintillion. It is one septillion. One septillion. And that's only a rough estimate of how many stars there are in the universe. It's probably a gross underestimation. The simple question of how many stars are in existence baffles even the brightest 21st century minds, let alone one ancient Israelite having a conversation with God under the night sky, like in today's scripture from Genesis. Last week in Deuteronomy, we looked at the land and the fruit that came from it to ground us in our journey toward returning to the heart of God this Lenten season. We encountered a promise of story and identity and at last celebration This week, we turn our gaze upward, aspiring to return to the heart of God by imitating our Creator, the source of our promise, our dreams, our guiding star along our Lenten pathway. But which metaphor best describes where you are on your faith journey now 10 days into Lent, or even before that. And I also invite you to follow along with your version event. All of these things are in there. Is it still exploring whether the journey is for me? Is it packing up and learning about the journey? Is it starting on the journey but unsure about the trek? Is it climbing up the path but still unsure about my footing? Is it looking to shed some unneeded things I packed so I can climb higher? Are you at a joyous overlook right now? Or is it something else? Just as far as the stars are from us, God's promise seems very far off from Abraham in these moments from Genesis chapter 15. 
And so I invite you to follow along in Genesis chapter 15 as we, and Abraham begins to question his faith. Where this promise of land and offspring that he was promised will ever come to pass. It appears Abram is willing to have faith up to a point. It is Abram at this point. He's not Abraham. Then the fulfillment of the promise of God becomes implausible. And that's precisely when the questions and the confusion and the fear and the obstinate sets in that maybe God won't do what God promises. And that's where Abram finds himself in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house of Eliezer is of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born of my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. Why is Abraham, Abram still doubting in Genesis 15? Because many years have passed since God has talked to him and promised him many descendants and his only heir is not even his own offspring. Abram yearns for something closer, more concrete, the solid weight of a newborn heir in the arms, like Katie and Sean await right now. Or the firm ground beneath his feet in a place he could finally call home, stop having to move around from place to place on the journey. And so in verse 5, he, God, brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven, count the stars, if you're able to count them. And then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. But stargazing was enough for this paragon of faith. Perhaps with Abram, we know we are in good company when we question and impatiently demand that we see proof of God's promises being kept. You see, humans are meant for stargazing. From the earliest civilizations, humanity tended to look to the sky for answers for all sorts of questions. People have marked celestial movements with great enthusiasm and sometimes with great fear like comets, eclipses. And thinking that if they looked up to the night sky, they would find their place in the scheme of things. Or perhaps they believed they understood this one thing then all the rest of the questions would melt away. Life would make sense. The ancients always looked to the stars through what they would have called astronomy, what we call astrology in many ways. You know, all those little symbols you got, you know. You're born during a certain time, so you're a certain thing. I'm a Capricorn. Pisces. Ah, fish. We do dumb things like look in the back of a paper or a magazine that somehow will tell us that what's going to happen. That's not how the ancients did it in the same way. That's our modern idea that those signs could point to something else, like what kind of day you're going to have tomorrow. 
But they believe that these signs meant something. I mean, somebody who's a cancer isn't the same as a Capricorn. If you looked up Capricorn, you'd pretty much see a picture of me sitting right there. Serious, deep-minded, moody. Somehow we're attached to these things that God created and influenced by them. Wait for a full moon to show up sometime and see how people act. You can't deny that our attachment somehow is to these things that God created because God created us all together. The orderly beauty of the night sky is undeniable. We mentioned a couple weeks ago about being in Yellowstone and just being able to see so many stars, right? More stars I've ever seen in my life. To see the Milky Way because you can see it out there. Galaxies. It's like living a dream. When we look at the, up at the night sky, we see the same stars that Abram did that night. He asked tough questions of God. We see the same stars the Magi did as they reached, read the whole sky in search of a new king who would free his people, which actually came in the sign of Pisces, the fish, and Regulus, the king star. The same stars that made the psalmist be able to speak out and break out in song and claim that God had a name for each one of them. He determines numbers of the star. He calls them each by name. One septillion. What happens though when God and God's promises seem as distant as the stars themselves, so far out of reach that we can't even feel like they're even, we're even connected to those promises anymore? What happens when a family who has prayed for years for a child asks with Abram, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? What happens when someone loses a house, a job, health care, and in the struggle to survive like Abram, they ask, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How will I know the promise? Certainty is elusive in the world that we live. Where we're waiting in the dark for urgent prayers to be answered and God's promises to come to be fulfilled? How do we keep faith burning bright in our hearts when the stars that are meant to guide us, they grow dim and cold? Until this moment in Genesis, Abram has unquestioningly done everything that God has asked of him. He left his homeland. He built some altars. He made some bad decisions. He parted from some of his family. All the while following God's promises of land and descendants like a trail of blessings. So how is it that doubt and questioning can be part of our faith journey? How can doubt and questioning lead us to a more mature faith? Or when might doubt and questioning lead us away from God? You see, Abram is walking the quintessential human journey of faithfulness in God. If we're grounded in our faith when we begin our journey, we too trust in the promises of God. Amen? And if we keep walking on our journey and those promises don't seem to be any nearer, then we start questioning. Amen? We question our own faith. 
We question God's faithfulness, the possibility of our dreams, the hurt of human suffering, the fear that we were wrong to trust in the first place. It's a painful place to be, sitting on the ground and staring at a sky that seems as far away as we can possibly imagine. And it's not getting any closer. And things aren't happening. But Abram, Abram was different. In verse 6, And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. In John Wesley's sermon, Justification by Faith, he, he says this, our founder says, Faith is an evidence of conviction of things not seen. These things cannot be discovered by our physical sense as belonging to the past or the future or intuitive realms. Justifying faith involves a divine evidence or conviction that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. Faith also includes a sure trust and confidence that Christ died for our sins, that he loved me and gave himself for me. Whenever sinners believe in this way, whether in early childhood, in their mature years, or when they are old and gray, God justifies those unrighteous ones. See, when Abram trusted God's promises, even though there was little sign that it would come to fruition, other than God's promises, God justified Abram or counted him as righteous. It's precisely this experience as a catalyst for our growth and faithfulness as it was in Abram's. It is in the questioning that Abram learns to trust again. To have that doubt and to work through it and to move forward stronger than you were before in your faith. Lent, as we know, is a transformation of the heart. And someone said the longest journey you will ever take is the 18 inches from your head to your heart. That's the journey we all have to be on, turning that head knowledge into heart knowledge. Question by question, Abraham's heart is being shaped into a more trusting form. Maybe we need to learn the same lesson. Maybe as we explore Lent in this wilderness and our dreams, as we count the stars. And look for the promise. And then he said to, to make sure that Abraham, Abram understands what God is saying to him. He says this. God says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abram brought him all these things and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. It's easy to miss what's happening here in Genesis 15 and its magnitude. You've got to understand about covenants. Covenants were made by dividing animals in half on each side of a ditch. 
then the blood of the animals would pool in a ditch. And participants in the covenant would walk through the ditch. Symbolizing if they failed to keep their promises, the other party of the covenant would be free to do to them what had been done to the animals. Cut them in half. In verse 17, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. What is that all about? The smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, they're gone. God came in fire. That's how God revealed God's self. In this story, God takes the sole responsibility to walk through the bloody ditch, symbolized by a smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. See, God in no uncertain terms to Abram demonstrates how serious God is in fulfilling God's promises and covenant. See, once again, we see that God takes the initiative in the covenant, not us. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. God makes the covenant. God walks between. If I don't do this, may this happen to me the same way these animals have been cut in two. And in Philippians 3.17, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, join in what? Imitating me. And observe those who live according to the example you have in us. Then he goes on to say in verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven... And it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul emphasizes that our identity is grounded in being citizens of heaven. These two scriptures are part of the lectionary for today. They go together. That Paul points is made clear by the titles placed on Jesus, Savior, Lord, Christ. While having almost exclusively religious connotations today, those words had political overtones in Jesus' day. They applied first and foremost to the Roman Caesar, all of those words. If you were a citizen of Rome, you saw the Caesar as God, the Messiah, the Lord. What does it look like to live as a citizen of heaven today? How do we imitate Abram, Paul? How can we offer words and actions of being imitators of God's nature of love to the community around the church that will help them experience a sense of being blessed by God? How are we imitators of Christ to those around us? How do we imitate God with all our heart? You see, Abram's story is a familiar pattern for Lent. In our cycle of faith and doubt and finally in trust. What today's reading leaves out is the part of Abram's dream that says, before God's promises will be fulfilled. And they will. 
Because God always keeps God's promises. Amen? That there will be a time of struggle and hardship for him. And just like the lectionary text skips over this part, we want to skip over that part too. We don't want to struggle. We don't want it to be hard. We don't want it to be time-consuming. We don't want it to change our patterns or our relationships or what we do. We want everything easy. Our society has created that in us, that everything should be easy. We don't want to struggle. There's a reason why people don't like Lent. The downtime in the church. Gosh, we sing all those horrible songs about Jesus dying and everything. and we, oh, It's all a downer. It's not like Christmas or Advent when everybody's like, oh, it's like this downtime. Holy Week's the worst. I don't even want to go to Holy Week. I don't want to see that cross all the time. Are you going to take it down during the season? I haven't decided yet. We usually do. I just forgot. Like we can't look at it long enough, you know? It can only be the start of Lent that somehow we can handle looking at that. That somehow we couldn't look for it for six Sundays. We don't like being in that place, and yet that's the place where we grow. At the foot of the cross, at the brokenness, at the place where we're at our darkest, is the place where we grow the most. It's hard for us to wait for those promises. So how are we imitating Abraham and the Apostle Paul and even Jesus when we trust in God's promises? Jesus trusted in God's promises too. All the way through his earthly journey, he's trusting in God's promise. Even in the garden, when he's there at the end and he says, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. And when he's even, even dripping blood, like sweat, which actually is a human physical condition in which you can be so upset you can actually do that. Even in that, at the end of it, he says, but not your will, but not my will, but yours. I don't want to do any of this. I don't, there's got to be another way. Can't we figure something else out? But even at the end of it, he says, but even, no, it's your way, not mine. Every time the disciples come to him and say, you don't need to do this. You shouldn't do this. You can be a great leader. You can be a great political leader. We can get an army together. We can do all this. Every time that Peter puts his foot in his mouth, Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Because Satan did the same thing to him in the, in, when he was out tempted, didn't he? Satan said to him, you can do these things. I can give you all the power right now to change the world. I can fix everybody right now. I can take care of all of it. and you can, I'll do it right now for you if you'll just bow down and serve me. It's not for my will. It's not what I'm supposed to be doing. That was the promise that he was living off of when he had no bread and when he spent that time out there. That the promise of God would sustain him. That the word of God would sustain him. It's hard for us. 400 years is a long time to keep trusting like Abram had to. To keep moving. To keep following God through a land that is not our own. That's what the long season of Lent is all about. It may seem long, it may seem short. Forty days really isn't much. Not the totality of our lives. To do something different. We are given time in the wilderness to ask the tough questions. 
to learn to trust God's heart even in the darkest places and to trust our heart to God's heart and our step to God's pathway to learn how to imitate God. It's our journey. Today we celebrate St. Patrick's Day. He has a special place in my heart. I don't really know why. I've read the confession. This little book is what it's all about, about him. He actually wrote it. Something about him that speaks to me. I don't know why that is in the Celtic way of Christianity. According to Patrick's autobiographical account, known as the Confessio, when he was 16 years old, he was captured by Irish pirates from his home in Britain, taken to be a slave in Ireland. And he lived there for six years before escaping and returning to his family in Britain. And there was a whole thing of, he, he actually heard a voice saying, the boat's here for you, you need to leave. And he got on the boat went back home. But Patrick writes, the time he spent in captivity was critical to his spiritual development. While in captivity, he worked as a shepherd and strengthened his relationship with God through prayer which he didn't have one before he started, eventually leading him to convert to Christianity, even though his grandfather was a, was a cleric and everybody else. He just never believed in it until this experience. And after six years of captivity, he heard a voice telling him that he would soon go home. And after returning home to Britain, Patrick continued to study Christianity become a cleric himself, a priest. That had been a great story. He, got to, he was captured, got to go home, return to his family, to stay in Britain the rest of his life, where he was born. But that's not where it stopped. Because he had a vision. Now think about this. He had a vision from a man... Coming as they were coming from Ireland, his name was Vic, Victorus, and he carried many letters, and he gave one of the letters to him, and he read it, and he heard the voice of those very people calling out to me to come and be among us and walk among us. So he decided, because of the vision that he had, they believe it's from God, he decided to go back to the place where he'd been a slave. How likely would you be to walk back into the place where you had been freed from? to go back to a country where you may not return again. And acting on his vision, Patrick returned to Ireland as a Christian missionary. And the rest is history, and some of it is legend. He never used a clover to describe the Trinity. That's not true, even though he's holding one and that's his symbol. It's unlikely. He didn't travel with the snakes out of Ireland. Never been any snakes in Ireland. That's why there's no snakes now. Because there's never any snakes in Ireland. That's pretty much been proven by geologists and archaeologists and every ologist you can think of. That's more than likely the whole act, though, of driving the Druids out, the priests of the natural religions. It would have been seen as snakes to the Christians, the pagan people. And he drove those out. But what is it about his story? What is it about his life that keeps it going on? I mean, you know, 
it's 2019 and we're still celebrating it in different ways. Some of them have lost all their meaning whatsoever. But why even that? Why does it still hold on? What keeps us celebrating it? What keeps us actually wearing green and finding ways that, you know, who's Irish in this room? Has any piece of Irish in them? Raise your hands if you're Irish. Yeah, so most of us are not Irish. <laughs> I'm about as English as they come, so that's not. What is it about him that speaks to us? And the more we know about him and, and that sort of thing. And He lived in the God's promises. He was certainly someone just like Abram who, who understood that God's promises were real and secure and he trusted in God's promises to go back to a place that he had been a slave in and would go back and, and not be welcomed either because he wasn't welcome when he got back. He had to go certain places and avoid certain people and he had to fight it out and everything else. It wasn't an easy task for him either and yet he's venerated. He's not even a saint, by the way, in case you knew that. He's not, he was never, he's never been officially recognized by the Roman Catholic Church as a saint. So he's small S, not big S. But the people wouldn't stop, see? Because obviously he had touched their lives in so many ways by imitating Christ for them. And so the way may be long. It may be winding. You may be unsure of where the next twist is or where it's going to go. But the God who set the stars in motion and keeps them moving, will guide us on the journey. Amen? But that same God that we look up at the sky and those stars keep moving without you doing anything about them, you know, you know, all the pieces about the light you're seeing from that star is not the same light. Those lights are different. You know, it takes that long for light to travel. Some of those stars don't even exist anymore in reality. The same God who does that And the next time we look up to those septillion stars, we might trust that God has put at least one there for us just to find our way home. The one star is for us in that big, big sky. And we look to stars like that. We go to find the star like the North Star. We recognize the stars like, for me, the stars that I recognize is Orion's belt, right? That's the one you always learn. It's the easiest one. Orion's belt and his shoulder and his sword's over here. And he's fighting who? Who's he fighting? Remember? What? Thank you. Taurus the bull. No, that's not a bear. That's Asia Minor. Asia Minor. And so you have that. If you look at the, the, the star, the Taurus... There's like a red star, like where the eye is. You know, it's like a little, it's a little bit of red there, and all this stuff. And we look at that, and we go to planetariums and see all these stars. And as a kid, and we go, "Wow, look at all these stars!" If it's like that, then just think about the fact is that those stars really speak to, to who we are, and the fact that God would say to Abram, "Your descendants will be as many as these stars," and if you go back. Abram is the father of three different nations, three different faith religions. When he became Abraham, the father of many nations, he is the father, spiritual and otherwise, of all of us as Christians. And that very easily, through every generation, through the history of the world, is a lot of people. 
So in essence, it was true. And so God says to this whole thing to Abram and says to us, says, return to me with all your heart, says your Lord God. Return to me with all your heart, says the Lord our God. That's our journey, folks. That's what we're doing. Imitating God and going on this journey together. Here's some of these words of the same kind of things that St. Patrick would say to us. In the palm of his hand, may the Father hold you. May the peace of his Son and his mercy enfold you. And may the Spirit provide you with blessings enough. And the Trinity grant to you faith, hope, and love. Amen. In case you're wondering, the Celtic cross is the cross put together with the sun because the pagan worship of the sun was important. And instead of trying to root that out, he decided to incorporate it, the son of Christ, the son of God and Christ and the sun. And that's why it's like it is. For three years, Jesus tried to get the disciples to fully understand what he was trying to do. To imitate his actions, to, to live like he did, to see what he saw and to be able to, to feel and aspire to what he was teaching them. And in that last week, as we approach it and as it gets closer and closer to us, it is that, that time when he has just those last minutes to be able to give them one last lesson, one last time to see who he is. And he chooses it during the meal, of the Seder meal, Passover meal, remembering when God's promises were fulfilled, when God passed over the Israelites' houses and not the Egyptians, so that Pharaoh would finally let them go, which, of course, they then left and went to the wilderness for 40 years wandering around, griping and complaining and wanting God's promise to be fulfilled every day. And one time, when they were out of food, God brought manna, bread from heaven, to them to be able to eat. And what did the Israelites do? They tried to keep it. And they tried to tuck it away so they would have food for tomorrow. And what happened to the food they tried to tuck away? Spoiled and it rotted because they weren't relying on God's promise. They were relying on themselves. And Jesus breaks the bread and gave thanks to his God, Father in heaven. And he gave it to the disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, it's broken for you, I, I lay it out for you. This is what's going to happen to me. I want you to know that I give my life freely for you. This is God's promise revealed. Covenant established. The two halves 
are broken. And when the supper was nearing completion, then he, he took the cup and the cup of redemption and he, he gave it to the disciples and let them dip their bread into it and they, and they drank from it. This is my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my promise. This is God's promise to you, to me. That my life is given for you. And they drank from the cup. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you drink, remember the great love and sacrifice that your God has given for you. This is the promise. This is the covenant. Broken. Spilled out in blood. Fulfilled for all time. One last covenant to take care of all of them. The covenant of Christ. The Messiah who comes to take away the sins of the world and give us new life. And so I invite you this morning as you come forward to consider what it means to imitate God. What does it mean to live into the promises of God? And what's the promise for your life? What is God speaking to you, trying to reveal to you? Is it wait? Is it hurry up, I'm waiting for you? Is it take a moment to get ready for the journey I want to put you on? Is it start the journey? Or any of those things we mentioned at the beginning. Where are you now? Where do you need to go? And who should go there with you? Because it's not a solitary journey. Who's your team? Who's your tribe? Who's your pack? Who is your group you're doing this with? We can't do it alone. Jesus didn't do it alone. He had three inner circle people who were with him almost all the time, and then he had 12 who gathered together in a larger group. The model we're using here for biblically focused small groups. Got to have a tribe. Everyone needs that. Come to the table. Remember his love and forgiveness and sacrifice for us. Let us pray as those who are coming forward to serve. Gracious God, as we speak into these moments, hear our hearts. Help our hearts return to you fully and faithfully. Speak your truth into us through bread and this juice. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ. We might be redeemed for the entire world. Lord, speak into all of us today. Power of your Holy Spirit. Infuse these things now. The people of God said together, Amen. Abel, it's not I or the United Methodist Church. This table is open to anyone of any age and of any stage. All that is asked is that you want to turn your life around, that you want to be different. You seek his help in doing that. So I invite all to come to this table this morning.
Come, receive, remember, repent, renew. Draw me close to you. Find the way. Bring- 
Lord, help us to know you're here and near. Help us to know and to know your plan is good. Your promises are sure and they're secure. They may take as longer than we want them to take. We're like the stars, though, that God has promised. Whatever it is you're dealing with, whatever it is you're trying to find on your journey, may you look to those stars for the promise. May we imitate Abram and Paul and Jesus and knowing that God is there and God's promises are safe. May we go into the world to be imitators of Christ to all those that we meet. That we share those promises of love, hope, peace, and joy, forgiveness. Go forth from this place to be imitators of Christ today. Return our hearts to God. Return, return, return. Amen. Go with God's promise. You're just